Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, everyone. As you might have heard, we're doing a survey. I want to know, how do you think the team here at Unchained can serve you better? Help us out by answering our questions at surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019. This is the last week I'll be promoting the survey. I'll keep it open until Thursday, July 11th. So if you haven't yet, go now to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019 to give us your thoughts on the podcast and what else we can do for you. And don't forget, you could be one of the five lucky people to win a free Casa Bitcoin Lightning node, plus a free year of Casa's gold membership, including a multi-sig security app for iPhone and Android, a Trezor hardware wallet, a Casa Faraday bag, and 24-7 support. Those of you interested in learning more about Casa or about protecting your Bitcoin investment generally should check out my interview with CEO Jeremy Welch. Thank you to Casa for donating. Again, the URL is surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019. Go there now to give us your thoughts on the future direction of Unchained and enter the giveaway before the deadline of Thursday, July 11th. Thanks again. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. CypherTrace cutting-edge cryptocurrency intelligence powers anti-money laundering, blockchain analytics, and threat intel. Leading exchanges, virtual currency businesses, banks, and regulators themselves use CypherTrace to comply with regulation and to monitor compliance. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. It has the tightest security, deep liquidity, and a great fee structure with no minimum or hidden fees. Whether you're looking for a simple fiat on-ramp or leveraged options trading, Kraken is the place for you. My guests today are Luis Buenaventura, founder of Bloom Solutions, and Leo Weiss, president of the Bitcoin Association of Hong Kong. Welcome, Luis and Leo. Hey, Laura. Hey. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Let's start with Luis. Tell us what you do in crypto. Um, so uh, I'm the founder of Bloom, a company out of Manila, Philippines. Um, the, our mission has always been to try to figure out a way to kind of fit the, I guess you could call it the, you know, the, the complexities of Bitcoin into something that, that works with our emerging markets. Uh, at the start, we were kind of focusing very heavily on how to use Bitcoin as a remittance uh, settlement mechanism. Um, you know, the Philippines has a pretty massive migrant worker population um, across like 50 countries around the world. So it made sense to us. Our second product is uh, called Bloom Teller. And what it does is it basically sets up your average foreign exchange agent or money changer at hotels and airports to be able to start buying and selling cryptocurrency over the counter, kind of, you know, kind of merging the traditional business of, of foreign exchange uh, into this new world of uh, cryptocurrencies. And we've, we've been around for um, three and a half years now, uh, seen our fair share of, you know, kind of crypto weirdness. 
Um, and uh, things are going pretty well for us on this side of the world. And Leo, what about you? What do you do in crypto? I'm mainly known in Hong Kong for organizing the meetups, um, which over the years has become a lot more elaborate than we are hosting more um, speakers and panel discussions and uh, lectures. Um, we're hosting hack, like a lightning hack day uh, in March or the a job fair uh, a few weeks ago. Um, we're hosting an annual conference for cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, so most of it has to do with community organization um, and yeah, keeping, keeping the industry together. Uh, but of course, this also then means uh, we talk to, uh, talk to the government, talk to regulators, talk to police um, on behalf of the industry. Um, and I personally would also uh, write a lot or uh, teach and give lectures myself. Yeah, and that's actually how you and I first connected because you are a contributor at Forbes and I, um, <laughs> when I was working there, tasked you with some uh, stories to uh, uh, to fill out our crypto coverage in Asia. So, yeah. um, yes, and actually just because listeners may be curious, um, you are actually not originally from Hong Kong. So can you just explain where you're from and how you came to live there? I was born in, in Italy. Uh, I studied in Austria. Uh, I moved to Hong Kong um, for my master's studies. That was in 2011. And uh, around the same time, I heard about Bitcoin for the first time. And, and, and in Vienna, it was uh, more difficult for me to find uh, people who heard about Bitcoin. Um, and yeah, and as I um, met people in Hong Kong and we talked about politics and tech, I slowly got to meet a few more people who heard about Bitcoin at least, um, who at least had similar questions than I did. Uh, and um, yeah, as I was finished um, with my studies, uh, I saw that somebody had just created the uh, Hong Kong Bitcoin meetup. And uh, I offered to host uh, more events. And since then, I've been pretty much organizing these meetups. Luis, can you also tell us how you got into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Um, so I've been a tech entrepreneur for like, I don't know, most of my adult life. And uh, in a previous startup, kind of one of the biggest challenges I was trying to work out was how to make e-commerce work uh, in a country where credit cards are just not really a thing. Um, I think even now, you know, kind of a, nearly a decade after, like, uh, you know, the, the credit card penetration in the Philippines is still only about 5%. Um, so I was looking for kind of a way to do online payments. And that's kind of how I discovered Bitcoin in 2014. And, you know, I mean, it never really, I guess you could argue that, you know, Bitcoin still really hasn't fulfilled the promise of being a, an online payments rail. But that was kind of how I first discovered it. And that was kind of the the impetus for me to learn what this was. You know, it was it was a little bit later after that when we realized that you could use it as a, a remittance uh, settlement mechanism instead, which is kind of still uh, primarily how we use it to this day. So the three of us met in person. I, I Even though I had connected with Leo online before, we finally met in person at the Oslo Freedom Forum. What was that? I guess about a month or so ago. And the two of them are just so 
knowledgeable about the crypto scene in Asia. And I had previously done an episode about Asia that was very popular. And so I figured I would have um, the two of you come on the show to discuss that topic. So let's just start with the most general question. How would you characterize the differences like in, in broad strokes between the crypto scene in Asia versus the West? So I guess I, my 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 characterization of it kind of stems from the fact that I, I've always been an outsider to things like Silicon Valley culture, right? So I kind of see it um, very much from, from, from afar. Um, and kind of the, 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 I think the way that the West approaches uh, cryptocurrency uh, tends to revolve around issues like, you know, um, it, it, it's better for personal privacy, personal liberty, uh, things like that. Uh, whereas kind of on the Asian side, it's very much about whether or not it can save us money. I've found that um, the primary question that I have to answer, like when I'm doing either lectures or training or, or whatever, is, is this any better than what we already have? And we do a lot of things manually still here in this country and, you know, kind of in most parts of Southeast Asia. But for the most part, with kind of minimum wage being what it is, um, it's not terribly inefficient because it provides lots of people jobs, you know, kind of all of the, all of the kind of internals of banking here that is still done manually, um, is not terrible, um, in, in the sense that, you know, it's, it's getting the job done, um, at a, at a particularly competitive cost. So is Bitcoin better than that is always kind of the question I get. And it comes down to raw numbers. If you can, bring the margin down, the profit margin down, the costs down, then we've got a, a potential deal on the table. And if not, you know, kind of the, the promise of, of, of liberty and potential, you know, the digital convenience or, or whatever is just not quite enough to convince people to get on board. Uh, at least that's what I've found. Leo, what about you? In East Asia, especially Hong Kong, China, uh, Taiwan, Korea, Japan, Stock trading is already a lot more popular than it is in the United States or Europe. Uh, it's almost done recreationally. People trade it while they work other jobs. People trade stocks while they drive taxis or while they, uh, while they commute. Uh, and cryptocurrencies fulfill much of the same purpose, except that they're a lot more accessible to people. Um, it's a lot easier to um, have a, vari a wide variety of products um, that you can trade. Um, on top of that, people, especially in China, don't always have um, a lot of investment opportunities. They might consider their local um, stock market um, too restricted or even too even fraudulent, um, while the local real estate market might be completely um, it might be in a bubble phase and completely overvalued, uh, and um, there is not a lot of uh, foreign products that are accessible. And so cryptocurrencies open up a new, a whole new uh, range of investment products um, that people can invest in. And it might not always be a very good idea. Um, and a lot of these investment products, of course, might be more shams, but they do create enough buzz and they do create these, these wild dreams of instant riches that draw um, quite, a, yeah, quite a large number of people to them. 
Yeah, I think the differences in your two answers probably stem from the fact that I think Luis was really talking about more of a B2B pitch where he was saying, you know, they're interested in how much can this save them? Like, Luis, you mean like a business that that might want to work with your company is, yeah. And then Leo's like talking about retail. So certainly, yes, on the the business level, um, it's kind of, uh, it's the very first question that they will ask. The second question is, is it legal? Uh, Which is another conversation entirely. Um, But I think that even for, you know, even for your average customer, if you if you were to tell them that there is a way for them to kind of support their family back home from from a country as near as Hong Kong, right? So Hong Kong and the Philippines are not even ninety minutes away by by plane, uh, but you know, like every year you got about uh, a, a third of a billion dollars in kind of personal remittances streaming between the two countries. And, you know, the, the question that uh, an individual would ask, uh, like an individual migrant worker who is working in Hong Kong, the, the question they would ask is, is this is Bitcoin cheaper for me than, you know, any number of traditional remittance channels uh, in Hong Kong? And, you know, just a little bit of context there, uh, like if you trust World Bank statistics, Hong Kong and Philippines that is the most fiercely competitive remittance corridor in the world. Um, and I'm not talking about on a crypto level. I'm talking like just traditionally. So um, using traditional channels, you can probably send uh, money from Hong Kong to the Philippines uh, for under 1% uh, in total fees, which is, you oh, know, wow. that's, that's probably as cheap as it's ever going to get from a, from yes. a kind of a personal remittance standpoint, right? Because you can barely run a business on, on 1%. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, the reason for that is that quite a bit of those savings are happening because of massive, like, business subsidies, right? It's a customer acquisition cost. Um, so a lot of remittance businesses will enter Hong Kong and try to uh, kind of compete by basically offering remittances that are so cheap that you could not say no to it. And that's, you know, that's just uh, that's just market competition, I guess. So some of this is starting to get into actually where I want to go next, which is, I think, also geographic differences within Asia, because also Leo did qualify his statement by saying that that was a trend he was seeing really in East Asia. So let's kind of break this down geographically. You know, we we talked about the difference between crypto in Asia versus the West, but now let's sort of talk about the main types of activity you see in the crypto scene and places within Asia um, or, or like what, what you think are the main issues or kind of themes uh, that you see in crypto in each of these geographies. And let's just start with the biggest one, which is China. What do you guys say about the crypto scene there? The Chinese government would very much want uh, crypto to just go away. Um, I think it's still small enough for them not to get like overly upset. But whenever the cryptocurrency scene makes too much noise or whenever it gets too much attention, the government um, likes to put it back in its place. And the, that means that the cryptocurrency scene is um, increasingly hidden. Uh, it's, increasingly, um, it's increasingly closed down among a couple of participants that trust each other and that only want to, to trade, for example, um, with people that they know. And it's becoming more and more inaccessible for for new p- 
people who want to buy or new people who want to enter or new people who want to um, participate in this in this uh, community. Um, that being said, Bitcoin is still very liquid in China. Um, it's still um, for those who are part of this community very easy to sell millions of dollars of cryptocurrency uh, and find a find a market for that. Um, How do they do that? They would have their uh, network of contacts, and in in within those contacts and within a couple of uh, like online OTC platforms similar to local bitcoins, uh, people would uh, people would buy um, buy these bitcoin if the price price is right. There are some people who are uh, making money doing arbitrage. Um, there are some people who are um, yeah onboarding their family or their friends um, through their personal bank accounts onto the cryptocurrency system because their their family or friends might also want to trade or they might also want to invest or they might also want to move money. The cryptocurrency and, and wait, and just changes. To clarify, wait, yeah. just to clarify what you meant there, you meant like um, you like if you're a relative of mine and I have Bitcoin and you don't, then you give me Chinese yuan in my bank account and then I give you Bitcoin? Yeah, or oh, okay. I would give you um, I would give you RMB into your bank account, and you know somebody um, who you can source this from. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. And you were going to say about exchanges? It's very much a, a, a chain of trust in a way, uh, where I would go to somebody who goes to somebody who goes to somebody, and and for each of these hops, there is a trust relationship, and that's how eventually I end up with Bitcoin, and somebody else ends up with RMB. The okay. Chinese exchanges um, more or less all had to leave China with their products. Um, that includes uh, Binance and OKX and Huobi, but they are all still active with those products. Um, Binance probably most famously. Um, they, this is also, this, it's all a bit sensitive in how these products are marketed. Uh, but these products are still very popular among um, people in China. Um, of course, they need a VPN to jump the firewall. Um, they need to buy Bitcoin somewhere else. But um, they're still they're still trading these products and they're still um, being marketed at. And on Hobby OTC, uh, people can easily find each other. They have some kind of rating system. Um, that makes it a little bit easier to source Bitcoin outside of people's uh, personal trust circle or outside of people's uh, proprietary WeChat groups. Okay. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. And what about Hong Kong? How, so if we're, if we're going to keep going, yeah, <laughs> with the different geographies. So Hong Kong still has a very liquid OTC market. It's very easy and it's um, possible to do so in the open um, to buy tens of millions of US dollars worth of Bitcoin um, from a couple of yeah very uh, professional um, uh, offices. The traditional fiat exchange market has never really taken off in Hong Kong. It just proved too difficult for these exchanges to onboard, uh, to maintain uh, banking relationships um, and essentially accept fiat deposits into their bank accounts, meaning Hong Kongers who ha want to um, deposit money onto an exchange 
um, often do that in, um, in New York or that in Europe, where the European and U.S. exchanges um, are able to relatively easily accept these international wire transfers and uh, um, for Hong Kongers to then trade. There are a lot of Bitcoin ATMs in the city that serve mainly those who value privacy and those who need Bitcoins uh, very quickly or very conveniently. And there are almost no legal issues around trading Bitcoin in Hong Kong. It's very easy uh, for anybody to start trading Bitcoin, um, no matter if it's on the peer-to-peer market or if it's um, through a dedicated OTC desk. Um, theoretically, it would also be possible to start a um, to start a traditional exchange without any licensing requirements. But whenever bank accounts uh, are yeah are too important for the business model, um, the business model often fails. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's yeah. The more that I learn about this space, the more I realize just how important these banking relationships are. All right. And let's talk about Japan. What is the crypto scene like there and how does it differ from other parts of Asia? Japan is very much the the lighthouse of Asia and it causes a lot of uh, a lot of discomfort for uh, its neighbors and for like for Asian countries. Uh, I have the feeling that if Japan would not take such a um, positive um, stance on Bitcoin, uh, a lot of places, uh, especially in Southeast Asia, would have already banned this. This is a question we get so often um, from, from big skeptics. But why is Japan embracing this so much? Um, Japan has a very strict licensing regime. Um, Japan is very strict with its exchanges, but it's the only country that gives cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin um, so much legitimacy uh, in that they almost treat this as a, yeah, as a, an important part of a future banking sector. The Japanese authorities, unlike, for example, their Korean counterparts, would also be quite coherent in their message. Um, there's the, um, yeah, the Financial Authority of Japan that has a, yeah, quite a clear message um, that rarely contradicts itself. Uh, the all exchanges are always under scrutiny, but are within a couple of limits allowed to offer um, yeah, a lot of products, a lot of different cryptocurrencies, um, trade um, all sorts of tokens and offer these products to the general public. And you started to say something about Korea there. So what is the scene like in Korea? Korea is in some ways similar, but it has these financial authorities split up into at least five different actors who might create conflicting messages. And as the way Korea gets um, yeah, portrayed, for example, in international media, uh, is then often a little bit conflicting, as in um, Korea might ban exchanges or Korea might ban ICOs. Uh, while others uh, insist that exchanges are doing very well in Korea and that ICOs are still legal. And what are the behaviors there? There was so much talk about the kimchi premium. I don't know if that still exists, but how is activity there? Japan and Korea have a couple of implicit capital controls um, that make it difficult for people to move money out of the country or make it difficult for foreigners to move money into the country. And I think both uh, 
both countries are well aware of this. They're well aware of the weaknesses of their banking system, and they don't necessarily know how to immediately fix this. Uh, I can also imagine that things like Bitcoin are a possible way out, not that people in those countries would immediately think that Bitcoin can replace the local banking system or can replace, um, c- connect the local banking system better internationally. Uh, but they're at least aware that um, this possibility exists and that Bitcoin presents a, um, yeah, in the future, a, a another option um, and one that might serve people better. But now as people have difficulty sending money in and out the country, which a couple, in, pe- in Japan, people have supposedly solved at least for the cryptocurrency premiums. Uh, but in Korea, these premiums still appear from time to time. Uh, when people in, in Korea want to uh, buy Bitcoin at a faster rate than everybody else in the world, uh, the Bitcoin price goes up in relation to, for example, the US dollar price. And the way people move money then out of the country to arbitrage that um, yeah, makes a lot of people uncomfortable too. Um, we see people coming to Hong Kong in budget airlines with pockets full of cash, whatever, whatever the legal limit is, lining up at the OTC desks in Hong Kong in the morning, uh, buying Bitcoin and immediately sending them to, uh, to Korea to sell them there, uh, only to fly back in the afternoon and uh, be on the next flight the day after. Uh, that's making the police in Hong Kong uncomfortable, it's making the police in Korea uncomfortable, it's making the budget airlines uncomfortable. Uh, they don't really want uh, so much cash on board either. But it seems to be the most reliable way for people to arbitrage these markets. And I think the, that shows quite colorfully where these weaknesses in the banking system lie, um, as it should be more convenient and easier and safer to simply send the money to Hong Kong. Um, but that doesn't seem to be possible all the time. Wow. Is that still happening? Yeah, I watched the uh, Korean crisis in relation to the rest of the world, like almost on a, on a minute-to-minute basis during the workday. And uh, the, the Korean premium hasn't really exceeded 3% in a, in a while now. Uh, in fact, uh, for, for, uh, you know, a big chunk of this year, um, Korea was actually kind of underpricing its Bitcoin by a couple of percentage points. Not, not, not nearly enough to trigger kind of, you know, the, the sneaker net kind of behavior that, that, uh, Leo was describing. But, um, certainly there's still money to be made there. Yeah. So, um, and it's largely because of their capital controls. Um, the, it creates kind of this, uh, alternate reality where Bitcoin is either minus 3% or plus 3%, uh, more, more expensive, um, uh, depending on kind of, you know, whatever the local sentiment is. And I, I don't see that really changing until we get to the point where, um, kind of those capital controls are, are, are lifted. Um, to allow some of that volume to, to leave the country. That's, that's a very kind of high level, uh, political, uh, question though. That's not necessarily anything that pressure from crypto exchanges are ever going to be able to change, I don't think. And, but wait, so Leo, what you described about the people flying with their pockets filled with cash, is that still happening or was that just during 2017? 
that happens that happens at the at the peaks um and yes it's still occasionally happening but not it's not a daily occurrence yeah as as you wow. said when the when the price when the premium goes beyond say 3 or 4% um then people very quickly do that again wow. it's an easy way to make uh, some extra money and get a trip zone call <laughs> right all right let's talk about singapore what's the scene like there Singapore is currently, again, very open to cryptocurrencies, um, to blockchain products in specific. I think there is a possible chance that something like the regulated token exchanges um, will happen in Singapore. But Singapore is also not always very predictable in that it swings forth and back. It, it, it embraces the community in one year and then swings back and everybody gets uh, and everybody gets uh, yeah, politely asked out again a year after. <laughs> I I will I will also kind of just uh, just add a little bit of color to that. I think that Singapore and and uh, maybe this is a distinction that's important to make in all countries. Um, kind of what the government's position is on crypto does not necessarily match what the bank's position on crypto are. Um, and I've found in Singapore the Monetary Authority of Singapore, so that's kind of the government side. Um, they are you know, kind of deeply uh, um, committed to becoming the financial hub of this region. Um, so they've been experimenting with things like um, like an interbank fund transfer system built on um, on Ethereum, for example, um, and stuff like that. Or sorry, yes, it was sorry, it was a it was a private uh, implementation of the Ethereum blockchain that they were experimenting with. The, I think that the limitation there is that maybe the banks don't necessarily want to, you know, kind of bank these crypto companies that would kind of um, come about be, because of the monetary authority's uh, encouragement. Um, so if you were a cryptocurrency company in Singapore in 2016, 2017, um, it was unlikely that you would be able to get a bank from the big three. Um, in fact, you would probably end up getting, if you wanted to get banking in Singapore, you'd end up getting one from a Malaysian bank instead because it was just easier and they were, they were not going to turn you away uh, at, the, at the site of the word cryptocurrency in your business documents. So I think that there's always kind of this funny disconnect between what the government um, wants to encourage and what the banks are, are comfortable doing. And I think that that disconnect is primarily because, uh, you know, if, if any of this stuff ever gets used for money laundering or terrorist financing, the, the, the penalties that the banks have to pay are, are so high that it, it kind of disincentivizes them to even give it a shot. If, if you know what I mean, like just the math doesn't work out. If I'm going to get like a hundred million dollar fine slapped on me, just to bank a $10 million crypto company, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't work out. Um, so that's kind of the, that's the calculus that the banks are doing um, uh, in their, in their heads. And, and unfortunately no amount of, uh, you know, um, government encouragement is really going to necessarily change their minds on that. I don't think. All right, we're going to keep discussing the geographic differences within Asia in a moment. But first, a quick word from first me, but then also from our fabulous sponsors. Hey, everyone, as you might have heard, we're doing a survey. Thank you to everyone who's already answered our questions. 
especially to the several respondents who suggested that I interview Satoshi Nakamoto for the show. I'll be sure to get on that right away. If you're one of the few listeners who hasn't taken it yet, what's the holdup? Go now to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019 to give us your thoughts. Again, that URL is surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019. I'll keep the survey open until Thursday, July 11th. And then I'll be picking the winners of our giveaway. Five lucky survey respondents will win a free Casa Bitcoin Lightning Node, plus a free year of Casa's gold membership, including a multi-sig security app for iPhone and Android, a Trezor hardware wallet, a Casa Faraday bag, and 24-7 support. Those of you interested in learning more about Casa or about protecting your Bitcoin investment generally should check out my interview with CEO Jeremy Welch. Thank you to Casa for donating. Again, take the survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained survey 2019, where you can tell me how to improve Unchained and also enter our giveaway. Do so before the deadline of Thursday, July 11th. Thank you to everyone who's participated so far, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Today's episode is brought to you by Kraken. Kraken is the best exchange in the world for buying and selling digital assets. With all the recent exchange hacks and other troubles, you want to trade on an exchange you can trust. Kraken's focus on security is utterly amazing. Their liquidity is deep, and their fee structure is great, with no minimum or hidden fees. They even reward you for trading so you can make more trades for less. If you're a beginner, you will find an easy on-ramp from five fiat currencies. And if you're an advanced trader, you'll love their 5x margin and futures trading. To learn more, please go to kraken.com. That's K-R-A-K-E-N dot com. Will the world follow France and advocate banning privacy coins? Will government-backed stablecoins become the new fiat? Are distributed and peer-to-peer exchanges just a flash in the pan? The answer is maybe. Virtual currencies can flourish and create a new, private, and more versatile economy. But that grand vision can't happen without keeping crypto clean. And that requires support of governments and accountability for bad actors. Privacy-enhanced compliance using cryptographic controls has the potential to preserve anonymity without compromising legitimate investigations. CypherTrace is working on this vision of the future. Sign up to stay up to date on the Privacy-Enhanced Compliance Initiative and receive authoritative crypto AML reports quarterly. www.cyphertrace.com slash keep crypto clean. Back to my conversation with Luis Buenaventura and Leo Weiss. So let's now talk about the Philippines. What's the scene like there? Obviously beyond remittances since we've covered that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the Philippines is one of the few countries that actually has licensing uh, for uh, cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, so here we call it the virtual currency exchange license. Um, and that came out at kind of very... Uh, auspiciously in 2017 as the bull market, the, you know, kind of the last big bull market, uh, was happening. To date, we have, uh, nine, uh, licensed companies, uh, here. Um, quite a few of them are, you know, kind of from other countries. So, uh, uh quite a few of those licensees are, are Chinese owned or, are Korean owned. Um, mostly because they can't get licenses in their own countries. So, you know, they'll obtain a license. Uh, in the Philippines, 
and you know, kind of be able to show their institutional customers, their kind of their investors that uh, they are licensed um, somewhere, which is, you know, which may or may not be uh, important depending on what kind of institutional partner you are. Um, but it's certainly been uh, a strategy. Um, I think that, you know, uh, Japan's uh, leadership in this space uh, was kind of limited to just like a dozen uh, businesses, right? I don't know that they've actually um, licensed any new businesses since 2018. Um, so, uh, if you wanted to get licensing for your your uh, crypto exchange business, there's just a handful of countries around the world where um, those licenses are are being issued and also kind of uh, you know are respected in a way, and and. Because of that, I believe the the queue for um, license applications here is about 60, 70 companies long. Hmm. They're all kind of waiting for, you know, a license to be issued to them. And, you know, based on the track record, you know, like less than 10 companies in two years, you know, if you're number 70 on that list, I think you should be prepared to wait for a while. (laughs) (laughs) And what about... um like when Leo was saying that there's a lot of trading in East Asia, the way, you know, people like to trade stocks. Is that a thing also in Southeast Asia? And we can even branch out now to Indonesia and Malaysia or Thailand or, you know, any of these other countries, Vietnam. I mean, Indonesia is kind of, uh, I would say the most advanced of, of the, of the countries in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, you know, I just looked it up today again. Um, they do about $300 million uh, in crypto exchange trading uh, per month. Um, I think that, and that's like mostly focused around a single exchange called Indodax. And um, they've been around for, I guess, uh, about as long as I've been in the space. So at least five, six years now. Uh, and uh, I think they're the one like major exchange that the region can really speak to. Um, there's certainly been many attempts. Uh, Thailand has five crypto exchanges that have been issued temporary licenses by their version of the monetary authority. And, uh, but no one has the volume of, of, of Indodax that I'm aware of. And is that just because of Indonesia's size? It's like the world's fourth largest country. So is, is that just part of it? It's just like much bigger I mean, that's, that's a, that's possibly part of it. I think it might also just be that, you know, um, they've been around the longest and kind of they started to, uh, become the platform on top of which other cryptocurrency businesses were being built, um, you know, as far back as 2016. So, so if you wanted to do kind of a, a crypto based remittance business into Indonesia, you would have to have Indodax as one of your, kind of liquidity partners or your uh, payment or disbursement partners or things like that. So, you know, I, I've, I've been kind of friends with um, the founder uh, for, for a while now. And, you know, he talks about how, you know, it was really rough for them at the start because there was a lot of infighting within their own community. I've seen that in, you know, the Philippines as well. I've seen that in Vietnam to a certain extent, like, like there's a lot of, <laughs> in fighting amongst crypto people. Who'd have thought that that was a thing, right? Hmm. All right, let's talk about India. The, well, I feel like what's going on there is kind of 
interesting, especially because it's a little bit in the opposite direction. But uh, or I, you know, I don't know how much you guys know about that. But you know, if you feel you can discuss that, what's the scene like there? Yeah, I'm not an expert, but it seems to be a very difficult market. Um, of course, it's massive, but the local authorities um, seem to put a lot of restrictions on on on, on money anyway. And there seem to be a lot of, yeah, difficulties in um, in moving money in and out of the country, for example, uh, with more explicit capital controls. And of course, Bitcoin uh, doesn't fit very well into those existing restrictions. And yeah, the authorities then um, put restrictions on Bitcoin businesses that, that they aren't allowed, that they aren't able to um, comply with, um, including making sure that people don't use Bitcoin for uh, illicit activity, uh, which includes circumventing capital controls. And there's no way to, to guarantee that or there's no way for the exchanges to to monitor this. And yeah, as I understand it, the exchanges are more or less winding up. I don't know if it's uh, completely banned as reported, but it seems to be very, very hard for uh, exchanges and Bitcoin trading is then more going into the underground, um, similar to China. Yeah, well, so this is actually a good segue because, you know, obviously the news about Facebook's Libra has come out recently. And, you know, just even from like the marketing materials, you can tell that they really are targeting those types of economies, like, you know, emerging economies. And, you know, yet, I don't think people in India or China, maybe China was not exactly in the marketing materials, but, but, you know, I don't, I don't think those developing economies are, those two in particular are going to be ones that will be able to access this. Um, but I was wondering uh, what the general reaction in Asia has been to Libra. It gets talked about a lot. Um, it does seem to be a big deal. Um, I think it's mainly a big deal because it legitimizes the idea of cryptocurrency so much um, and because people expect a company like Facebook to have a clear plan and to have a clear strategy on how this can be used and, and how this can be, um, yeah, can be put to the masses. And a lot of people are then mainly, uh, mainly curious in, in what these plans are and how they can possibly copy them or how they can um, or how these plans might conflict with their personal interests or their corporate interests. I have a bit my doubts. I don't see the plan and I'm very suspicious when, um, when, when these strategies are so hidden. Usually, including with Facebook, we had a clear idea on how things like WhatsApp was supposed to have a a transfer mechanism, a payment mechanism, which I believe was rolled out in India too. And it was a lot more um, easy to understand how people are being onboarded and offboarded and how people then use this to send money between each other. In Libra, this is entirely unclear. We don't know how people are going to get their hands on these, on these Libra coins. Uh, we don't know how people are going to be able to, to trade them or, um, or for what purposes people are going to be able to use them. And, I think most importantly, we don't really know how people are supposed to price their products and services in Libra uh, and how the market is going to like find a good 
local exchange rate. Um, but that's also the most exciting or more interesting part about Libra for me is that Libra is a free-floating uh, currency. It might be backed by a basket of uh, fiat currencies, but it's not pegged one-to-one in that I'm supposed to ask for a Libra, um, two Libras, 3.3 Libras uh, when selling a product. Um, unlike all the previous efforts of um, tech companies to build payment platforms and, uh, and mobile wallets, which were always priced in the in the local currency. Right. Yeah. I think I think that is a, a powerful notion. And Luis, what what are you seeing in terms of the reaction to Facebook's Libra? Um, so I, I guess I I guess you could say that I am both in admiration of and horrified by the the Facebook strategy thus far. Um, I mean, they really are. They haven't been. They haven't been putting this together for just a couple of years. It's been it's been many years, I would I would argue, um, and I think their first real uh, attempt at this it kind of dovetails into it is the Internet.org initiative from way back in 2013. Um, if you recall that 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 was a an initiative to bring the internet, uh, heavy air quotes on the internet, um, to to people um, who couldn't afford airtime. Right. So uh, they launched it all over Southeast Asia. Uh, they launched it all over Africa. Um, so now uh, there's a, as many as 40, maybe 50 million people around the world who whose first experience of the Internet um, is kind of free dot Facebook dot com. Right. Um, and part of that is uh, you can use the messenger. You can use uh, WhatsApp. You can get a kind of a, you know, a media light version of Facebook um, without having any uh, airtime credit on your phone. And what that means to me is that they're probably going to have more uptime um, for their, their Libra wallet than most third world banks, um, because you don't even need uh, internet access technically to, to use it. Like if you're, as long as, as long as you've got a SIM card in your phone, you'll still be able to use it regardless of whether you have any data on your, on your phone. Um, which is kind of an interesting uh, proposition. So if you remember in, in 2016, uh, Facebook uh, obtained uh, its remittance license in, in Europe. So they've been planning this for, for quite some time now. Like they're trying to build a platform for kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the lowest um, kind of socioeconomic bracket um, that will allow them to sell, send payments, send and receive payments, um, using the Facebook platform. Um, and they've already been setting up their regulatory, um, kind of their, the, they've been setting it up from a regulatory standpoint since as far back as, as 2016. I think that because of this, because of all of the kind of, um, things that they've had to have in place before they went, uh, and launched Libra, I think we have to kind of at least respect that, you know, this is a serious initiative from them. And I, I think that, you know, come 2020, when they actually launch the thing, um, we're going to see like a pretty major sea change, at least among kind of remittance businesses, um, because Facebook's reach is so big that, you know, it far exceeds um, kind of the, the, 
the, any anyone else's network, really. I mean, I guess Western Union uh, is still in a in a hundred countries, so that might be the one kind of network that that Facebook um, is not as large as. Um, but I think that you know if they use a combination of you know um, their their free internet uh, connectivity. Um, and the fact that they are subsidizing customer uh, transactions very likely, um, I think that that's going to be a very powerful uh, uh, proposition for your average customer. The other reason why I actually think it's it's a pretty good step. Uh, this one is a little bit more controversial, um, but I um, uh, I did write about this as well. I was saying that uh, you know your average Filipino, and I'm, I'm I can speak generally about your average Southeast Asian. If you look at it from a, the perspective of your average millennial, for example, so your average 20, 30 something here, they, they don't remember that, you know, around the years that they were born, you know, the Philippine peso was able to buy, you know, like, uh, $1 for 27 pesos. Um, but, you know, today you can only buy half a dollar with that same amount of money. Um, so kind of in the space of, um, you know, uh, a generation we've lost about 50% of our buying power against the dollar. And I think that the, the potential of Libra is that, you know, it might actually provide a kind of a weird backdoor way for, for people to get out of the Philippine peso. So I've been kind of advocating this. I realize that this is a very anarchist kind of point of view, but I've been advocating for people to stop saving Philippine peso uh, for a, for a long time now, mostly because, uh, you know, year on year, we lose about two to 5% of our buying power against the dollar. That's been fairly consistent over the last decade. Um, so, you know, saving your pesos in the bank just doesn't really make sense. You would never be rewarded for it in the long term. Yeah. In the long run, Libra could be like threatening to developing countries with weak money for that reason. Like if, yes, if a lot of people start doing that, yeah. Yeah, and I think that it, it, it in a way it, it makes sense because you know, like if there's a if there's a simple, safe, accessible way for your average Filipino who is not making a whole bunch of money, right? Um, for the average person, if there's a safe way for them to get into another currency, uh, any of the primary currencies would do. Uh, I think that's still right. far superior than holding pesos. Right. So in the West, uh, kind of the general themes of crypto discussion have been, you know, continued interest in Bitcoin because of uh, its properties that are similar to digital gold. Uh, then this question about Ethereum as it tries to scale. And for that reason, more broadly, kind of the quote unquote smart contract wars, where we're seeing these other smart contract platforms launch and and then people have also been interested in the in these interoperability protocols like Cosmos and Polkadot, and for whatever reason, also perceiving that those might even be competitive with Ethereum. What are the themes of discussion in the Asian crypto community, um, or what have they been kind of over the last year? We certainly see a lot of projects trying to be the next Ethereum. Um, that's in quite big uh, in similarity to maybe 2015, 2016, when we saw a lot of projects trying to become the next Bitcoin. Uh, and now we mainly see Ethereum challengers emerge. 
But I don't think people have a good idea of uh, what smart contracts mean or what smart contracts can achieve. Uh, people often expect them to be um, to be general little computer programs that they can plug into anything they want, for example, public transportation or uh, or their bank accounts, which can then enforce certain conditions. Um, and things like the Oracle problem are sadly not discussed enough. Uh, but <laughs> a lot of this is a big investment play. Um, the Ethereum has been successful at yeah, making a lot of people a lot of money in a short time. And when people want to build the next Ethereum, what they want to build is the next big um, get-rich-quick machine and not so much a, a functioning smart contract platform. And in a way, that's what investors um, expect too. Asia has, has really seen over the last decade, um, or maybe even over the last two decades, a explosion in asset prices. And no matter where you go in Asia, real estate is becoming unaffordable. Um, anything, any kind of licenses, any kind of, um, any kind of asset has uh, increased in price. And uh, there is a lot of capital that is looking for alternatives. And the local stock markets are often not um, developed enough. Um, there's, there's Tokyo and there's Hong Kong and then there's nothing else. Um, and that Capital is not always uh, um, easy to to send to the U.S. or Europe, or it might not be politically convenient. And cryptocurrencies and specifically smart contract platforms are picking up a lot of this capital. And uh, when when investors want to invest, then there's going to be some people who are going to create these investment opportunities, even when that uh, looks a bit scammy or when that is not built on a solid technical foundation. So this doesn't have to be a long answer, but I was just curious. What does the Asian crypto community think of Tron? Um, I mean, here in the Philippines, at least, um, it, it, it's kind of hard to take him seriously. I, I th also don't think that we have uh, as much of uh, kind of the, 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 the Tron glow as maybe countries that are closer to, to the Tron headquarters are. Um, so we're, so we kind of see it mostly as we're, we're outsiders. Um, he's just one of many other, um, kind of founders that, that have tried to, you know, really, really push their product. You know, he's definitely On a got plagiarized white paper. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even going to argue that part. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, he, he's a real character. I will say that. Um, and I think that, but we've seen that before, right? We've seen that, I mean, sorry, not the plagiarizing part, certainly not, but like, um, like, uh, uh blockchains that uh, were, you know, immensely popular without necessarily kind of having uh, a product that, you know, kind of did anything. I think that, I think that we, the, the, from the Philippine perspective, we're still very much kind of in the kind of the Bitcoin is crypto kind of mode. Um, there's very few people that are kind of looking like to to the alts for anything other than a quick kind of bump in their their holdings. I think. And Leo, what if, do you know what people in that region think of Tron? I don't hear much from it. I don't even get a lot of Tron spam. We don't see proponents, or we don't see people explaining it. Um, yeah, I don't hear much okay. from it. Okay. 
All right. So I'm confused as to where this market cap comes from. But anyway, um, okay, so we're running out of time. But because we have Leo on the line, um, obviously, you know, you're in Hong Kong, which has been in the news a lot. And I did discuss this briefly with Alex Gladstein. And I did mention to him, you know, I just put myself in the shoes of those people. And I just imagine if I had grown up in a country similar to the U.S. in terms of its freedoms. And then suddenly, you know, it was like, oh, it's going to become more like China. Like that would be hugely terrifying to me. So um, I wanted to ask about these protests. Um, Have those protests had any impact on the interest in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies or in the activity you're seeing in the crypto space or vice versa? Like, or is, you know, are people using them in, in any kind of interesting way, uh, the protesters, I mean? Uh, not directly. I think when people think about the very short run, they're worrying about how to prevent this law from going through, or they're worrying about how they can pressure um, the chief executive into apologizing or how they can most efficiently surround the government headquarters. And Bitcoin um, is not like, in- immediately relevant to that. But it does come up a lot more in conversations uh, when people are thinking about how to how to prepare their move out of Hong Kong. And we've seen the news of a couple of uh, tycoons, a couple of billionaires preparing to move their money out of the country. And of course, people have these same worries. They, they have the worry that um, their money could be seized much more easily than, than they could. And for people who don't have the ability to uh, move money abroad because they don't have foreign bank accounts, um, or the, the, the sums are not significant enough. Uh, Bitcoin has come up quite a bit in discussion. Um, so much to move money out of Hong Kong by simply putting it in Bitcoin. Um, and people, it's, uh, it's, I think it's quite frightening that people are talking about the possibility of, for example, war with Taiwan or the possibility of um, having to, to flee Hong Kong as the government violently suppresses some, some um, protests. Uh, but Bitcoin does come up in those discussions. Um, it's just that those are not necessarily situations that people uh, want to see. Um, and associating Bitcoin as this um, tool of, of last resort um, might not be the, the best association either, uh, because we believe Bitcoin can be uh, better money even in a, in a peaceful and, and developed future, and not so much uh, only in a future of, of war and misery. All right. So because time is short, we're going to just move quickly through some other important topics. So Binance, most important company in crypto, arguably now, they are doing everything they launched a DEX. They're going to issue these stable coins. They're going to offer borrowing and lending. They just announced this Bitcoin peg token. There's so much going on there. What is the perception in Asia of Bitcoin's, uh, Bitcoin, of, <laughs> of Binance's direction? I see them very much admired. Um, I see people very much admiring um, their founder and the company um, of having built a, a product that's accessible to the broad masses of not... Um, yeah, of not shying too much around um, um, what is what is relevant, uh, and people people seem to love their products. Uh, I don't think I think 
Binance knows um, exactly where all this is going, um, which is fine. We also don't know um, where this is going. Uh, and for Binance to branch out so much and try out everything um, is mainly an attempt to um, not miss out on uh, whatever the next uh, big hype cycle might drive. Yeah, I agree. And has this reputation been damaged at all by the hack? I mean, we did not even really see any change, right? Um, from the hack, like it seems like they're still as popular as ever. People seem to be even quite impressed with how that was handled, um, for example, compared to uh, other exchanges in the region. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see. Um, I, I mean, I think Binance is also hugely admired here in the West, um, even as they did uh, finally block <laughs> the U.S. Um, all right. So to wrap up, why don't we talk <laughs> about which Asian crypto projects people are excited about and um, and also which people in that region, you know, you think maybe are not as well known in the West, but probably should be. So interesting projects or people in Asia? I think there's a lot of great technical um, innovations coming out of uh, Japan. Uh, for example, the folks of, uh, of Crypto Garage, uh, which is part of Digital Garage, uh, I think they are getting not enough credit for the yeah, technological work they do. Um, and I feel that, especially when it comes to Lightning or when it comes to smart contracts on Bitcoin or when it comes to second layer, um, a lot of the yeah, a lot of the fame is, is still soaked up by Silicon Valley and a couple of places in Europe. Um, and Japan is very much contributing to that. And wait, so what are they doing exactly? Like you said, the projects they're working on, but what are they working on? For example, um, yeah, second layer uh, settlement networks, not thing, similar to, to Liquid or even building on top of Liquid. Oh, okay. Well, so one startup I'd like to highlight is a company called BitSpark. Uh, out of Hong Kong. Um, so founders uh, George Harrop and Maxine Ryan have been at this for a uh, little over five years. And, you know, perhaps this is a personal bias of mine, but I think the reason why I like them is that they tend to have the, kind of the similar similar instincts as as my company when it comes to how to bring this stuff to kind of the, you know, people on the ground. And that's kind of always been a big kind of, uh, mindset that that I I think is very necessary um, because the as, as we've kind of spent the last hour talking about the you know the the Asian mindset is not necessarily the same as maybe you know kind of the North American one and I think that building specific products for this uh, this region is a better strategy than than say kind of trying to trying to shoehorn. Um, maybe a, a product that was designed for the Western market uh, in, into here. Um, so, you know, they're doing things like uh, they were doing things like crypto remittance. Um, they're also doing things like uh, the, a money exchange, a money changer uh, teller platform. And in those ways, our, our two companies are, are quite similar, except they're doing it kind of on the Hong Kong side and we're doing it on the Philippine side. So I quite like what they're what they've been um, doing lately. Great. Okay. Well, <laughs> clearly there's uh, there's a ton to discuss in Asia. Obviously, it's a huge region. Um, it's uh, probably a little bit more than we can fit into an hour long podcast, but we did go over time. Um, but where can people 
learn more about each of you and your respective organizations? Um, so I'm at Hello Luis on Twitter, um, and my company website is bloom.solutions. We are bitcoin.org.hk. Um, easy to find us uh, on various social media platforms, including Meetup. Please do say hi when, if you're in Hong Kong, uh, when you, even if you're just traveling through. Um, say hi, um, even if there's no Meetup scheduled. Uh, maybe we can schedule one. Uh, we always love to uh, meet new people and connect Hong Kong to the world. And Leo, why don't you also tell your Twitter handle? Um, I'm at, uh, on Twitter at LeoAW. Um, yeah, ping me there. Okay. All right. Great. Well, thanks both of you for coming on Unchained. Thanks so much, Laura. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Leo and Luis, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you haven't yet taken the Unchained survey, now is the time. Go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash Unchained Survey 2019 to tell us how we can do better at Unchained. And don't forget, those who enter the survey can enter to win one of five free CASA Bitcoin Lightning Notes, plus a free year of CASA's gold membership. Thanks, CASA, for donating. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.